Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read our section that we're going to be looking at tonight, and then we'll begin to break it down. It says, Paul, a servant. Some of your translations may say slave. That's actually even a better word. A slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, though through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now before we start unpacking these verses and this whole book, it will do us some good to do a little bit of background study on the author and the purpose of this letter. If you've been a part of any of my Bible studies, we do a little, we don't do a deep dive on when was it written, who was it written to. We're going to hit this kind of quickly and skim through it, but you need to have an idea of who it is that God used to write this book, what's the circumstances, and that, all that with what's going on behind it. Verse 1 clearly shows us that the author of this book is the Apostle Paul. He was originally called Saul, and he was a devout Pharisee. He was taught by Gamaliel himself, a famous teacher, a famous rabbi. And he originally was against this new movement called Christianity, or the Way at the time. He actually was arresting and killing those who claimed that Jews, sorry, that Jesus, who had been crucified, was the Messiah. Paul was originally against what now he's given his life to. But instead of just taking my word for it, I want you to take Paul's word for it. Go with me to Acts chapter 26. We're going to jump back. We're in the book of Romans. Turn back a couple of pages probably to Acts 26 verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. Paul a few times has to defend himself and he shares how and why He's now a believer, and in doing so, he tells his own story. And look at Acts 26, verses 1 through 5. So Agrippa said to Paul, have you, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Jump down to verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Jump back to Acts chapter 22 and look at verses 1 through 5. In Acts chapter 22, Paul again sharing his own story. He says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, 
according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So here we've seen in two accounts of Paul in different places, he shares that he was a strict, devout Pharisee against all of this Christianity, this way, this group of people that were saying that Jesus, who had been crucified, was the Messiah. And he set out not only to have them arrested, but put to death. And he not only persecuted them in Jerusalem, he actually went all around to foreign cities with the authority of the chief priests and the, and the leaders of the Jews to go bind them and bring them back to have them put to trial and put to death. So what changed Paul's mind? How come Paul, writing to the church in Rome, it starts off by saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle for the gospel of God. How, what happened to Paul? What happened? Well, he met Jesus for himself, folks. He met Jesus for himself, the risen Jesus. Go to Acts chapter 9 with me, and let's see the account of him meeting Jesus. And then we're going to read a couple of places where Paul shares his own words of what happened. In Acts chapter 9, look at verses 1 and following. It says, but Saul, this is what his name was before it was changed to Paul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. Now the men who were traveling with him and stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he was rose and he was baptized and the taking food he was strengthened. Now, as it goes on and continues to talk about how even though he was a believer, the early believers were still struggling a little bit with the fact that he really had changed because he was such an enemy of the gospel. It was hard for them to accept it at first. Go to Acts chapter 22 again, though. Let's hear Paul's account of what's happened here. Acts 22, look at verses 6 through 21. He says, as I was on my way, Remember, he's on his way to Damascus with permission from the chief priest to 
arrest and have put to death those who believed in Jesus. He said, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Jump over to Acts chapter 26. Let's take one more place where Paul gives this account of what happened in his meeting Jesus. We'll start in verse 12. Acts 26, verse 12. He's in the middle of a conversation. He says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Keep that in mind. That's going to be very important later on tonight. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Now, there's a lot more I could take you to. We could go to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, and look at how Paul, again, shared when he wrote the book of Galatians, how he didn't receive this gospel from man, but was taught by Jesus face to face. Folks, what happened to Paul? How come he went from an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Christ, to all of a sudden saying, I'm a slave of Christ. My whole life is for the gospel. He met 
Jesus for himself. Now, he got something that a lot of us haven't gotten. He was called to be an apostle, capital A apostle. And in order to be a capital A apostle, he had to have been taught by Jesus and met Jesus himself face to face. If you remember, back when they were looking to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1, Peter said, look, we've got to find out who's going to replace him. But it has to be someone that's been here, who has seen Jesus, been from his baptism all the way until his ascension. And so to be in a capital A apostle, they had to have been taught by Jesus and met Jesus face to face and also have been able to do the miracles and the signs and the wonders. Paul was an apostle sent by God. But when he met Jesus face to face, he gave his whole life to following Jesus. Now, this caused a lot of the people that he used to work for really get them, got them really upset. But what, what about us, though? Jesus actually tells uh, Thomas when Thomas sees him and after he's risen from the dead and touches his side and his hands. And he said, blessed are you because you've seen and believed even more blessed are who? Us who have not seen yet believe. I'm pretty sure that none of us here have ever seen Jesus face to face yet. But you know what? Why do we believe? Because he's real. He's risen from the dead and he's revealed himself to us all in many different ways through his word, through creation, through people sharing the gospel, his spirit working on our hearts. He's done many, many things to bring us to him. And there came a point, I pray, in everyone in this room and everyone that's watching. And if you're here tonight and you haven't gotten to that point, may you surrender to the spirit's call in your life. We're going to end with that at the end of our study. But I pray that everyone here can say Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lord He's the one who made the universe. He's the one who lived the sinless life. He's the one who died on the cross in my place, and my life is his. He met Jesus for himself. And that's why, go back to Romans chapter 1, Paul starts his letter to the Romans, describing himself not only as an apostle, capital A, sent by Jesus with his authority, but also as Jesus' slave, his servant. I don't know how many really grasp how much Paul's life changed when he met Jesus. I mean, everything that he had spent his entire life for, working towards, was now thrown away. I, I don't know at what age exactly Paul was here, most likely in, probably in his 30s. But everything that he had worked for at that point was now, well, let's take his own words. Go to Philippians chapter 3. He considered it rubbish. He now is desiring to get to know Jesus more and to live out the plan that Jesus has for his life. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. He says, talking about those who have confidence in their flesh, he said, though, chapter 3, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
Don't you think Paul had some pretty good connections being a Pharisee and the, the level that he had been working his way up? I bet you his membership in all those clubs was immediately revoked. How many of you are willing to lose your membership in your club for the sake of Christ? Some say you already have. Good for you. You know, one of the sad things that happened during, well, it's happened all throughout Christianity, but I saw it happening a lot in the 70s and 80s, is there was this movement in the church of trying to let the world feel like we're no different from you. We're really not much different from you. And we tried to soften the gospel and say there's not really much of a difference in, in everything in order to try to reach people by saying there's no real difference. And folks, we've got to be willing to acknowledge, and especially in this day in which there's going to be a clear distinction, we have to be ready to understand, especially as we get close to the return of Jesus, that we need to be willing, like Paul, to say, even if I lose it all, Jesus is my whole life. A lot of people will say, oh, I'm, if he ask people, who are you? Oh, I'm a plumber and a follower of Jesus. I'd like to see us flip it around. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ who happens to also work as a plumber. I mean, really change how you look at your life. I'm... I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ who also happens to be a, a mom and a homemaker. The first and foremost, we're a follower of Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary. But unfortunately, a lot of us, Jesus is just one of those many things in our lives. And he doesn't want to be one of the many things in our lives. He wants to be first. When Becky and I were first married, and we still do it every now and then when we remember, we used to always tell each other how we loved each other, but we'd always say, you're number two. You're number two. It helped us remember Jesus is always going to be first. Now, Paul most likely wrote this letter in around 57, 58 A.D. from the city of Corinth. Paul had been collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem and had hoped to go to Spain from Jerusalem via Rome. And that was his plans. And you say, well, how do you know this? Well, read your Bible. Go with me to Romans chapter 15. He actually tells us in our study of Romans. We'll get there later on. But Jump to Romans 15 right now. Look at verses 22 through 29. In Romans 15, starting in verse 22, Paul says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, talking to the church in Rome. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I'll leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, here he says, I've been wanting to come to you guys for a while. I've been wanting to go to Rome, but I've, Lord's got other plans, and he's had other things for me to do, but I'm realizing now that my time of ministry in this area is coming to a close. I've been collecting this offering for the saints in Jerusalem and the poor in Jerusalem, those same people that I was persecuting. I'm going to try to help them out now. And he said, after I'm done that, I'm going to be heading. I've really had a heart to go to Spain and I'm going to go to Spain by way of Rome, and, and I hope to see you then. Now, I'm going to deal with something real quick. If you take the time and look at Acts chapter 21 through 28, don't do it now, and read chapters 21 through 28, you'll see what happens. He actually does go to Jerusalem. 
But when he goes to Jerusalem, he gets arrested by the Jews. And that's why we see him defending himself before one group and then another group and so on. And if you study, you'll see he gets arrested by the Jews and the Romans are in charge and they try to kill him and the Romans keep that from happening and he has to go through a trial process. And it ends up taking a few years and he eventually makes his way to Rome. But not in the way that he had originally intended. He actually went there as a prisoner. And he spent a lot of time in prison there in Rome. Now, let me say this to you as well. And I'm just going to chase this rabbit real quick because I don't know how many of you have been sucked into this, but I'm going to encourage you not to get sucked into this. I was actually talking with a pastor up in Massachusetts this afternoon, and, and we were talking back and forth about ministry, and I'm doing my mentoring with pastors around the country. And I was encouraging this young man as he's a part of a church plant and all that not to set his goals. I go, that's going to go against everything you've been taught. We've been taught to have your five-year plan and your 10-year plan and all this stuff. There's nothing wrong with having an idea of where you'd like to go and dreaming about what God may or may not do. But once you say, okay, by this time I'm going to be here and by this time I'm going to be there, you pull yourself out of the abiding relationship. And if you look all through the scriptures, Paul's been saying the same thing. James says, don't say tomorrow we're going to do this and that. Say, if the Lord wills. And you see him write to the Corinthians at the end of chapter uh, 1 Corinthians, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, and talks about how I wanted to come to you, but God said, no, I'm going to stay here a little longer. Now a door's open, but when I got there, Titus wasn't there, and so I didn't feel a peace about it, so I'm going to move on. We need to be living our lives with an idea of where we think God's wanting us to go, looking in that direction, but listening as we go. But many of us, trying to walk with God, trying to serve the Lord, have been taught to have a one-year plan, five-year plan, ten-year plan. And I'm going to say this to you as good as I can. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. He felt like God was calling him to Rome. And he ended up going to Rome, but not like he had planned. But this was the whole purpose of why he was writing this letter. Well, actually, there's a couple other reasons why he was writing this letter. First was introduce himself to, to the church there and prepare them for his arrival since he had never been there yet. And there's a second reason, and this is where I think it's going to be really valuable for us. I believe he was also laying out a clear teaching and a treatise on the gospel and Christian living. This book is one of the best in the entire Bible for laying out the full teaching of the gospel. Uh, years ago, I read in a commentary, this one commentary writer called the book of Romans a prophylactic. And I went, Ooh. but if you know what the real word means, it means it guards against disease. The book of Romans will keep you from falling into error theologically. Do you really take the time as we're going to to study it verse by verse, look at it, allow the Spirit of God to show us how the rest of the scriptures all tie together to it. It will keep you from falling into error when it comes to theology. And I believe Paul wanted to lay out a clear teaching and a treatise on the gospel and Christian living. You know why? Because as much as Paul wanted to go to Rome, he still didn't know if he was ever going to get to Rome. And he wanted them to have a clear teaching of the gospel. That's why I tell you that Paul's letter is going to be, a valuable to be valuable to us as well. Go to Romans 15 again, and let me show you something in verses 4 through 7, and then in verse 13. Romans chapter 15. Look at verses 4 through 7. He's talking about the Old Testament, but it applies to us here being in this time period in the New Testament as well for us. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, 
we might have hoped. But before we move further, does that, does that not sound like something we need right now in these days? We need instruction and we need encouragement, and we're going to get it from the Scriptures. I love how Paul, when he met with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, we see it in Acts chapter 20, and he says, I don't know if I'll ever see you again. And he says, I even know that after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in amongst the flock and lead people away to follow them. They want to have disciples after them. And he said, but you know what? Even though I've warned you night and day for tears, here's what I want to tell you. He says that in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. He says, and now I commit you to God and the word of his grace. That's all you need. What was written in the past was written for our instruction, and that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have endurance and hope, and keep reading now. It says in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of of God. Jump over to verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is my prayer as we dive into Romans this, in the next few months, year, however long it takes us to go through the book of Romans, is that God will use this study to be an encouragement to you. That it'll, the God of endurance and encouragement would be allowed to speak to your heart so that you don't get sucked into all these things in the world right now that are trying to distract us from the most important thing. And that is our walk with Jesus Christ and his purposes for each of our lives, however they may be and wherever he has for us to be. And that we would get rooted and grounded in the truth of the gospel, the truth of who we are in Christ. When we get to chapter 5, the knowing how that we're at peace with God. How Romans 8, 1 is going to talk to us about how there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. We can go on and on, and it moves into, in chapters 13 and 14, actually 12, 13 and 14, and 15 and 16, dealing with how we're to treat each other and how we're to act. Folks, I'm having the hardest time right now wanting to just shout. This is going to be a fun, fun book to study, and I believe God's led us to this time for a reason, because I think we will find it to be very, very helpful. We don't know what it's going to look like in the days to come. None of us do. But we know that the Bible tells us that things are going to get worse and worse in the world and especially for the church. But that's okay. I actually, I share this with you because I know you're interested. I had a meeting with a colonoscopy doctor yesterday. It's not my first one. I'm due for a second one mainly because when they did my first one at 50, they found stuff that they said, you're going to come back in five years, but it's been seven and at the same time, I, as you know, got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in between that and then and all that. And my cancer doctor says, let's go get you checked. And so by God's plan, I couldn't meet with my regular doctor. And so I end up having to get one that'll be sooner. And he's up in Cape Canaveral. And so I got connected with this guy. And I go into the office yesterday. And he says to me, and by the way, I don't know where he's from, but his first name's Hassan. And he said... Uh, he said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a traveling preacher. And I watched for his reaction. And quick as anything, he goes, what do you think about what's happening in the world right now? What do you think's going to happen next? Where do you think we're going? Little did he know, we're about to publish a book on the book of Revelation called What Will Happen Next? So he had asked the right guy. I gave him the short answer, though. I said, 
we're heading to a one-world government. I said, the Bible's very, very clear that that's where we're headed. We're headed to one world government. I said, we can pray against it. We can try to fight it as much as we can, but it's going to happen. The Bible says it's going to happen, so therefore it's going to happen. I said, but I'm not worried about it because the Bible also says that because of my faith in Jesus Christ and my relationship with him, he's going to take care of me in the process, and one day we'll be taken out of here. Well, he started asking more questions. We got talking about the two witnesses in Jerusalem. He wanted to know who I thought they were. And I said, well, got some ideas on that, too. And I shared with him those types of things. And then I don't know if he was baiting me to find out where I was or if he's really curious. But, folks, we're living in a time which even those people that I don't know if they know the Lord are realizing something's happening on the globe right now. I, no, I didn't send him a bill. Hey, if, if the gospel's free. The gospel's free. Here's the thing, though. Years ago, get right to you, Rick. Years ago, I was on the golf course, which, you know, happens once in a while. And uh, I got talking to this man. I got paired up with him, and he wasn't a believer. And he made very clear to me, I don't believe in that stuff. I don't want to talk about that stuff. Let's just play golf. I said, that's fine. Because I really believe that if you let him know where you're at, you let your peace go out. If it's not received, shake the dust off, move on. I ain't worried about it. We have now played 16 holes. And he turns to me. Remember, he didn't want to talk about any of this stuff. And he turns to me on the 16th hole and goes, okay, I got one question. I go, what's that? He goes, are we in the last days? If people that don't know the Lord and don't want anything to do with the Lord are saying, are we in the last days? Folks, we are living in an exciting time. Don't get sucked into politics. Don't get sucked into all the other stuff. Live the life that God has for you as a slave of Jesus Christ. And let him walk you through what he's got in mind. He will take care of you all the way through it. Rick, go ahead. We're in the last holes. <laughs> now, I don't usually tell people what I do for a living when I golf with them for the first time unless they're beating me. <laughs> then I make them a little nervous and try to catch up. So. I don't know where he is. We'll find out. I don't know. I, we'll, we'll find out. I'll see him again. Possibly soon. But he'll be behind me. But that's another thing. So <laughs> he'll see me. All right. Now that we have digressed, we've briefly looked at Paul and his conversion and his calling. But now we must closely look at what Paul was set apart for. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, Set apart for what? The gospel of God. The good news of God. Did you all remember how we looked just a few minutes ago at Romans 15? How God is a God of hope and encouragement? God loves us. He loves the world. His message is, there's a judgment coming, but I've done everything in my power to keep you from it. I lived the sinless life for you. I died in your place. I rose from the dead to reveal it's me and that I'm the only way. I've done everything to keep you from it. Folks, if you go to hell, you chose to go on your own. For too long, people have said, I'll never believe in a God who would send people to hell. He doesn't. They choose. They choose. He's done everything in his power, and he tries to use people like myself and others to continually call you and say, don't go there. You don't have to go. But I look at verse 2. Look at about this gospel. 
This gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We're going to stop here real quick. This gospel is not something new. It's been there the whole time. Some people think that Christianity is a new thing. No, no, no. Christianity can be traced all the way back to the book of Genesis. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God tells Satan that a seed of the woman is going to defeat you? The gospel's been there all along. It is not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. It's been the same God forever and ever. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Folks, don't get sucked into, well, God was an Old Testament God, but now he's given grace. No, he's always been a God of grace. This gospel was promised beforehand by the prophets through the Holy Scriptures. Go to Romans chapter 3. We'll jump ahead to chapter 3 real quick. By the way, you're going to find in our study that even though we're going to look at other passages of Scripture to kind of illustrate and bring light to what we're looking at in Romans, Romans is going to explain itself. That's how awesome the book of Romans is. Look at Romans 3, verses 19 through 24. He's just finished saying how no one's righteous, not even one. And look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Don't miss what he said. The law was there to show us our sin. That was the whole point of the law. It says when God said don't do this, He knew we were going to. And actually, if you get to Romans 5, verse 20, you'll see that actually the law was given so that we'd sin more. I've asked that for years. Does God want lost people to sin more or sin less? And they always say, sin less. Nope. The Bible says he wants lost people to sin more because one sin is going to make you guilty before God in Romans, sorry, James chapter 2, verse 10. But if a lost person doesn't realize he's a sinner, God says, I want you to realize you're a sinner, so let's get you sinning enough so you realize you got this problem. The law was added to show that you're not as righteous as you thought you were. But the law and the prophets have been testifying that this salvation has always been by grace through faith in God's provision for man's sin. Go to John chapter 5. Look at verse 39. Look at what Jesus says to the Jews in John 5 verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, at this time, what were the scriptures? The Old Testament. He says to the Jews, he says, you guys are searching the scriptures because you think in them is eternal life. If we can just read this book and do what it says, it's been telling you all the time about me. You say, well, where did he do that? Well, I'm just going to give you two. Go with me to Job 33. There are many, 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 and I could take too much time tonight, possibly, laying this all out for you, but hopefully you understand, and hopefully through a couple of scriptures, you'll see that God has been saying, sharing the gospel all along. 
in the Old Testament. Job 33. We're going to start in verse 14. Job's been saying, well, how can man talk with God? You know, how can a man hear God and talk to God? Elihu comes on the scene and says, God does speak. Look at verse 14. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from man. And he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. In other words, God puts him through suffering, but he doesn't let him die. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. Now if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand to declare to man what is right for him, and he's merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Isn't that awesome? Look what Elihu says. God's trying to get man's attention through lots of different ways, and sometimes he's got to let them go through sickness and suffering and all this to get them to the point where they're almost at death, and they start to realize, you know, I'm mortal. And God says, I got good news for you. There's a mediator. He's the one who says, don't let him die. I've paid a ransom. The man prays to God and God gives him righteousness. And he says, look, I sinned and did do what was right, but it wasn't paid to me. Isn't that Paul's message? I was a murderer, Paul said. You're going to hear him say that. I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent man. I was an accuser of the brethren. I was, I was one of the worst, chief of sinners. But because of Jesus Christ, I've been declared righteous. Folks, that's the gospel in the Old Testament. Let me give you one more. This one you're a little more familiar with, but go to Isaiah 53. Look at verses 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us? By the way, when we get to Romans 10, you're going to see this part right there quoted. They did hear. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, whoever this he is, grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. 
Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before his shears is silent, he, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When now his soul has made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Well, we've already seen that this guy, this he is going to die, but now we see he's going to come alive again. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Folks, that can't be any more clear than that. That's the gospel. Who's this he, by the way, that they're writing about? It's Jesus. Hundreds of years before he took on flesh, the one who was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that was going to come, the seed of the woman, and defeat Satan is now being pictured again here. All through the scriptures, he's been talked about. Jesus himself said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. They're pointing to me all through. Go to, I'm going to give you another one. I can't help it. Go to Psalm 22. Go to Psalm 22. Folks, like I said, I could spend the next week showing you all through the Old Testament. Jesus actually did that to the two men on the road to Emmaus on a seven-mile, 11-mile walk. Psalm 22. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? But Jesus said on the cross, jump down to verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Isn't that what the Jews were saying while Jesus hung on the cross? Look at verse 14. I'm pulled out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. I think Jesus said, I thirst. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Folks, don't think for a second that there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. The gospel that we share, that salvation is by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. By his grace alone has been the gospel all through the Old Testament. I can show you how the book of Hosea says the righteous shall live by faith. David says in Psalm 51, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he goes, I would give an offering and sacrifice if you desired it. But what you desire is a broken heart and a contrite spirit that you won't despise. All along, God has said, come to me to cover your sin." We now live on this side of the cross and we see God's eternal plan starting to be laid out even more clearly. And we have the benefit of seeing the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Jesus himself did come to the earth. He was, a, as you're about to see, a descendant of David according to the flesh and proved to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. But this gospel that Paul was set apart to, that he fought until he met Jesus face to face, 
This gospel has been the gospel all along. It's always been salvation by faith in God's provision for your sin and you being declared righteous, not by anything you did. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Romans 1. This gospel that the prophets in the Holy Scriptures had been talking about, had been promised beforehand, verse 3, concerning His Son, God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This gospel concerns God's Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, as we just saw, but was proven to be God's Son, how? By His resurrection from the dead. And by the way, if you want to do a little study, if you like history, you like to do some digging and research, you will find that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most provable event in all human history. It's the most provable event in the entire history of the world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go to Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to read to you two passages from Psalms real quick. Again, the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. But I want to kind of take you real quickly to Psalm 2 and then Psalm 16. We're going to be in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12. In Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12, it says, Why why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right, look again at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Go to Psalm 16. Look at verses 8 through 11. It says, I have set, verse 8 of Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It's interesting. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. Here says you won't abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is going to make a whole lot more sense now when we go to Acts chapter 13. Go down with me to Acts chapter 13. And Paul, this same guy that wrote the book of Romans, is preaching to a group of Gentiles and Jews in a synagogue. In Acts 13, verses 22 through 39, he's talking about how Saul had been king of Israel. And then in verse 22, and when God had removed him, Saul, from being king, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, 
who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose, or what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. He says, brothers, son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they didn't recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from the Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, we know now it's chapter, Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. You see, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, his body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Did you hear it? All along. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, you remember our study of Matthew, how it talked about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who was a descendant of Abraham and also of who? David. And in the flesh, you can trace Jesus' descendancy to David, just like the prophecy said, a seed was going to come, and a descendant of David was going to come. But he wasn't just a descendant of David. He was also the Son of God. And how was it proven that he was God's Son and that he was God himself? By he rose from the dead. By the fact that he rose from the dead, and he did it by his own power. Oh, the Holy Spirit was involved and God the Father was involved. Stop trying to divide the Trinity. You're going to hurt yourself trying to do it. But Jesus himself said, no one takes my life. I willingly lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. And he had told his disciples, oh, they still didn't catch it. Three times in Mark 8, chapter 9, verse 10. Sorry, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 of Mark, you can see. He actually tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me, but three days later I'll rise. They don't understand. He says it again. He says it again. And just like the prophecy said that he would die, and even though he was dead and shared a grave with the rich, God prolonged his days. After the suffering of his soul, God was satisfied. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Why was he beaten? Why was he crushed? Had he done any sin? No. So why was he beaten? Why was he crushed? For our transgressions. Folks, don't try to make the gospel tricky. It's going to be hard for people to grasp it. Is you saying that's all there is? Yes. That's why by the foolishness of preaching, God's chosen to save people. And we've just got to be willing to say, here's the gospel. God loves you. And this Jesus that came to the earth, 
that everybody knows about. And they're trying to change the time now and how we say things instead of A.D. and B.C. and all that stuff. They're trying to change some of that stuff just so they don't tie it to Jesus anymore. The world knows that there is a guy on the earth named Jesus. And the world knows that he rose from the dead. This same one, by the way, was proven to be the one that fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And if you want to look into it, go look into it. You'll see that they're true. And on top of that, he wasn't only proven to be a descendant of David, of the flesh. He was also the son of God, according to holiness, by the fact that he rose from the dead by his own power. And folks, here now, 2,000 years after his resurrection, Jim Johnson can look you in the eye, those that are watching right now online, and I can tell you, Jesus is alive. And I've given my life to him. And I pray you have as well. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. It's through faith in Jesus Christ that we receive God's grace and his mercy and forgiveness. Look at verses 5 and 6. There's something here I want you to see, though. And through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Yes, the gospel was first revealed to the Jews. We're going to see that when we get to Romans 1.16. God not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. But it's always been for all the nations. You see that there in chapter 1, verse 6. Jump with me to chapter 16. Go back to chapter 16, the end of the book, verses 25 through 27. You'll see it again. He says it at the beginning of his letter and the end of his letter. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 1, chapter 16, both clearly say that this gospel is for all nations. It's for everybody. Here's how we're going to close tonight, though. Look closely at verse 7, and don't jump to a conclusion in answering this question. But I'm going to ask you, as we read verse 7, who did Paul write to? Did he write to believers only or to everyone? Look at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you again. Who did Paul write to? When he wrote this book to the church in Rome, was he writing to only believers or was he writing to everyone? Very good. He was, he's writing to believers and to everyone. So if you said everyone, you got them both. You see, it says, to those who are loved by God, for God so loved the world. The book of Romans has been written, as you'll notice, as you're going to see when again in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's going to lay out the gospel, how everyone's guilty before God because of sin. And you wouldn't have to write that if you're only writing to a certain group of people. He's writing to everybody. But it's also those who are called to be saints. Go with me to Matthew 22. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 22, and he's illustrating the fact that the gospel was first offered to the Jews, 
and now it's being shared to the Gentiles. And by the way, Gentiles were being saved in the Old Testament as well. It's always been for all the nations. But in Matthew 22, look at verses 1 through 14. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Remember, parables are stories that are made up to teach a certain teaching. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. So the servants were sent to what? Call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Now, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. That's what happened to Israel. Then he sent, said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Some to the, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen to us closely to verse 14. For many are called... But few are chosen. The gospel's for everyone. Everyone hears. Everyone's called. Everyone's loved. But it's only those who respond appropriately to the call who are considered, as we see in this story, worthy. Oh, he offered the Jews. They rejected him. Beat the prophets and killed them. So he... Removed them from their land until the time when he was going to finish with them. We've been looking at that in our study of Revelation and Daniel. But on top of that, he then sends it, go out into everywhere and just invite them. And they're all invited and they all started coming in good and bad. But one guy came in and he wasn't willing to wear the wedding garment. By the way, when you were invited to a wedding, when you showed up, the master of the house would give you a wedding garment that showed you were welcome. You're under his acceptance. The guy that's in there says, don't need your robe I'm good enough on my own. So the master comes and says, how do you get in here without this? In other words, are you trying to be accepted to the wedding without my approval? Doesn't work that way. The gospel is for everyone. But it's only going to be applicable to those who, by faith, humble themselves and say, I need your garment. I need your righteousness. So who's he writing to? Everyone. Everyone. It's going to be an encouragement for those who are in Christ. It's going to be a warning to those who are outside. And my prayer is that if there's anybody here tonight and anybody watching, that if you're not right with God, that you will get right with God through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And if you are right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, this will be a study that will encourage you, give you hope and endurance. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.